And I'm really, really excited about the study that we're beginning, six-week study on Christian apologetics. And so I'm going to open with prayer, and we'll get in, uh, get going, and excited about the opportunity we have to look at this. So Lord, thank you so much for this morning, the chance to study uh, your word, a chance to study how we can make a defense for our faith. And I pray that you would be with us, give us assistance by the Holy Spirit, strengthen us, and help us to learn the good things that you have for us to learn. Lord, we uh, we really want to be witnesses in this world. We know that we're surrounding by, surrounded by unbelief. Uh, we know that uh, we are called on to be witnesses and to make a defense for the faith. So pray that we would be uh, prepared to do that and able to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are uh, beginning a six-week class uh, today on Christian apologetics. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, this is a subset of the general ministry that the elders have, that, that teachers have. Uh, from Ephesians 4, to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. So some of the teaching that we do week by week is exactly for that, to prepare you to do good deeds, to get you ready for the good works that God has gone ahead of you to prepare. And I believe a subset of those good works over our lifetime is evangelism, that we're called on to share the gospel with lost people. There is no greater joy that we have in, in life really, than to see lost people cross over from death to life, to actually be there. It's a privilege that, you know, very few of us get to enjoy, certainly as much as we would like. And so you, I would just want to ask you to make this a matter of prayer. Say, Lord, set something up for me um, so that I have a chance to share my faith with somebody. Even this week, give me an alertness to see that and, and just get me ready. Meanwhile, we'll try to do our best to get you ready for those times. So we're going to talk about apologetics. Now let's talk about what we mean by Christian apologetics. What is that? Uh, how would we define it? Well, a simple definition or, or a qualification, sorry, of apologetics, the word itself could be misleading. We don't want you to misunderstand that Christians should be apologetic about our faith. Uh, we're not saying that. And I'll tell you, there's more and more of that theme. Uh, you know, as things just progress with our culture, it seems more and more that non-Christians think Christians have a ton to apologize for. We have very archaic views on a lot of controversial topics. You know, and they're listed in your handout there, but, you know, on homosexuality, on gender-based roles, on, you know, sexuality. You know, we, we are just like in the dark ages. We're like weird people, and we have a lot to apologize for. You know, bring up issues of slavery, other things like that. And, and you know, just uh, that's not what I, what I mean. Okay? I think there are plenty of things we Christians need to apologize for. Yeah, it's called our own sin, and we do sin, and we need to be humble about that. But Christianity as a faith has nothing to apologize for. Um, no, that's not what apologetics is. Apologetics uh, it literally comes from the Greek, apologia, which is to put words to, uh, to make a defense for. You know, in technical term, the idea is you're accused of something, and you make a defense uh, for yourself. Um, and so, in, in the use of the, of the word, it moves from, in the New Testament, from making a defense for yourself to making a defense for Christianity or for Christ. So, at some point, the spotlight goes off of the witness onto the faith. And so, it begins with you. You are a troublemaker. You're a disturber of the peace. And you're brought before Christ kings and councils, Jesus uses that, log, that, that language, to give a defense for yourself, and you end up giving a defense for Christianity, because you haven't done anything wrong, you're innocent, 
without, I mean, just like Jesus himself, they hated me without a cause. And so, uh, you know, throughout 20 centuries of church history, God's people have again and again been maneuvered in front of tribunals and they've had to give uh, a defense. And so you can see in the handout lots of examples of this. Jesus said in Luke 12, 11, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what to say. That's the Greek words, uh, apologia, that's, you know, to make a defense for yourself. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, and then uh, in Luke 21, later in the same gospel, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. Now, I know literally we could be like in clear violation of that with this BFL class. So we're getting you ready ahead of time on what you should say, all right? But Jesus is saying, don't worry about what you will say ahead of time. The Holy Spirit will be there to help you. I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So I don't think this class is a violation of that. What he's saying is don't be anxious about it. And I'll tell you, in church history, it's been amazing how much the Holy Spirit has come alongside or been within witnesses to have them say some of the greatest things that have ever been said in church history. Like uh, once one woman, a uh, Roman woman, Felicitas, said to her accuser, while I live, I shall defeat you, and if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. Now, that's great. You can't come up with that ahead of time. The Holy Spirit gave her those words. That's awesome. So what do you say? And then the same thing, a lot of these other verses. Uh, Acts 19.33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. That's the Greek word, same thing. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. That's Paul in Jerusalem. And Paul again in Acts 24, make a defense. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.3, he says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. And there he's talking about the right that pastors have to be paid for uh, the ministry. And I'm going to talk about that in my sermon today uh, in 1 Corinthians 16 about money, that, you know, it's right for Christians to support the ministry financially. But he uses the same word. Uh, he's going to make a defense. All right, so that's defending yourself. But then it moves, and in every case uh, in the New Testament, it moves to defense of the gospel. Philippians 1.7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Defending the gospel, same Greek word, that we are called on to make a defense for the gospel. And again, Philippians 1.16, the latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So uh, defending ourselves and defending Christianity are uh, related but different issues. We ourselves are called to be witness for Christ. Now in 1 Peter, Peter says, make certain that you're not defending yourself about some sin you committed. So keep your conduct pure and holy, because at that point you're just getting what you deserve. But if you've done nothing wrong and you're hauled in, then at that point, you know, uh, the Lord will be with you and protect you. So witnesses, we're called on as witnesses, uh, Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses um, to be, you know, to the Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, ends of the earth. The, we are called on to be witnesses for Christ and to give evidence. That's what witnesses do. We give evidence uh, for the truth of Christianity. We aim to show that Christianity is true and reasonable 
and to persuade all people to become as we are Christians. Uh, the, the photographic negative of that is to show that other religions and worldviews are false and unreasonable, which they are. So there's two sides to it. Our religion is true and reasonable. Christianity is false and unreasonable. Those are two sides of the same coin. So here's some definitions of Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is John Frame. Christian apologetics is the discipline that teaches Christians how to give a reason for their hope. Now we'll talk about the verse that's behind that in a minute, but that's his definition. Uh, how to give a reason for hope. Uh, apologetics is the application of scripture to unbelief. The application of scripture to unbelief. Cornelius Van Til, another great Christian apologist, said, Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. So vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against alternatives. Apologetics is that branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational basis for the truth claims of the Christian faith. William Lane Craig, Craig is part of Christian theology. Rational basis. Again, you're going to get this idea of Christianity being reasonable. It is reasonable to think these things. Um, James Sire said, Apologetics is the demonstration that Christianity is reasonable, and thus, A, to assure Christians that their faith is not idiotic, and B, to clear away the obstacles and objections that keep non-believers from considering the arguments and evidence for the truth of Christianity. That's an interesting definition. There are therefore, based on that, two different audiences for Christian apologetics. What are, the, what are they, according to James Sire? Christians, Christians and non-Christians. So for Christians, what, does, what function, according to this definition, does Christian apologetics serve? Okay, so would Christian apologetics be useful to a new believer that's growing in their faith but still has some residual doubts and some questions that have never really been answered by their evangelist. Yes. So Christian apologetics then comes in to sh just make it a slam dunk. Christianity is just absolutely no doubt about it true for yourself. But it's still a matter of unbelief. It's coming after your unbelief. It's coming after your weaknesses to show you that Christianity is true and reasonable. So it's Christians. But then the other audience is who? Unbelievers. So what, what role does apologetics play with them. So it's part of the evangelistic process where some obstacles that are in their way to coming to faith in Jesus are removed. I guess it's not so impossible to think that X or Y or Z, kind of like that. They may have some misunderstandings. They may have statements like, you know, hasn't the Bible been changed over and over and over again, etc. Well, you can show that it hasn't that there's amazing manuscript evidence for the antiquity of, of both the Old Testament and New Testament. And it's like, oh, all right, I didn't know that. So that at least doesn't mean they're going to be Christians, but that at least is, is removed, okay? Uh, other definitions, apologetics is the discipline that deals with a rational defense of the Christian faith. Again, that word rational. The business of engaging the worldviews of the day intelligently and thus bearing witness to Christ with credibility. So there's a rational side here to it, uh, to it and... And we believe that, um, that uh, you know, cr human beings were made in the image of God and they reason things out and they have reasons for what they do. All right, now let's defend apologetics, which is a little ironic. Let's make an uh, a, a, a apologia or a defense for apologetics itself. Why would we need to do that? Well, some people are against it. They just say it really doesn't have any function. It's really not useful. Um, but I want to go to a key text, and this is our central text for this entire course, these six weeks. 
And that's 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Someone read that for me. Let me just pick up verse 16 real quickly. I just alluded to that. Like, don't sin. Don't mess up. Don't do wrong things. All right? Keep a clear conscience. That's part of being a witness. But the first part has to do with the, uh, the, the doctrinal side of Christianity. And he says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Be submissive to Christ as Lord. And then be prepared to give an answer. And apologia is a Greek, to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the logic. It's just a Greek word for, for word, logos, but it's just bigger than, it's a very big word in the Greek for the hope that you have, that, that we're going to put a word to our faith, we're going to show the logic to our faith, and, and, and it says be prepared. So there is a preparedness that goes into it. And John Frame is saying, simply put, apologetics is the effort by Christians to obey First Peter 3.15. That's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're getting ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, that our hope is reasonable. It's reasonable for us to have hope. And I love that because hope is the feeling or sense in the heart that the future is bright. And, and for us as Christians, based on the promises of God, as, as Hebrews 10.23 says, hold fast to the hope you profess because he who promised is faithful. Isn't that a great verse? I love that verse. Hold on to hope because God, whose promises are the basis of your Christian hope, is faithful. He's going to keep his promises. So it is reasonable. Isn't this amazing? It is reasonable for us to be filled with hope. It's like, I am looking forward to the future. Well, how much of the future? All of it. I'm looking forward to the rest of today. I'm looking forward to the rest of my life. And I'm looking forward to eternity. Wow. That's very different than the way non-Christians are, isn't it? They are without hope and without God in the world. And I'll tell you what, 2020 took a lot of idols away from people. They're not satisfying to them anymore, or they're unavailable to them. And we're surrounded by people that are realizing they base their lives on things that just don't satisfy. So it's an opportunity for us. Anyway, 1 Peter 3.15. Any questions about that? It's a key verse on, a, on Christian apologetics. Questions? All right, so why then would Christians think that we don't need to do apologetics? Well, they've rejected apologetics. They say the gap between the thinking of an unregenerate person and that of one that's born again is infinite and can only be closed by the miracle of regeneration wrought by the Spirit. You can't argue someone into the kingdom, they will say. Now, what I want to say to that is that kind of statement forgets the process of drawing or calling that's essential to salvation. There is a process of learning and education and reasoning that goes on in unregenerate people before they're born again miraculously by the Spirit. I agree that we can't actually make someone born again. We never thought we could do that. In evangelism, we're not able to do that. We can't do that. It's not our job. But there are some things that are, and we're going to put some words toward people and some of that might be what we were calling here apologetics, answering objections, showing reasons why, evidence, things like that. And I think it forgets the calling or drawing process. Someone read John 6, for us. That's a very interesting word, the word draws. It's a forceful word. It's used of dragnets uh, that are used by, by Galilean fishermen <coughs> which, in which the net is pulled forcefully through the water collecting fish. And so there's a sense of the fish being moved or gathered in to the fishermen. And Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. 
there is a force and no one can come to me, that's a spiritual journey, from point A to point B, unless the Father does what? Draws them. There's a force being put on their souls to draw them to Christ. And they're not Christians yet, but they're en route. See, And that process could go on for years. There's a force. Remember what, what Jesus said in the third account of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. It's there for us on the, te uh, the text, Acts 26, 14. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice say, saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So only the other two accounts didn't give that word. But what Jesus says there is, I have been putting goads, which are sharpened stakes, that cause fractious animals to stop kicking back at their masters when they are yoked up and they're wanting to, to get them to pull the plow or something like that. There are some animals that aren't into it, put it mildly, all right? And so, you know, you put a sharpened stake back there and they learn not to kick back. And it's a metaphor or like a miniature parable that the Lord is using. I have put goads in your life. To the end that what? What, is the, what are the goads there for? What does Jesus want out of Saul of Tarsus? To come to him, believe in him, become a Christian. Those are inducements, reasons why, why you should become a Christian. Now, here's, I think, one of the number one goads is in Acts 6, 8 through 10. Someone read that for us, Acts 6, 8 through 10. All right, so Stephen was proving from the scripture that Jesus was the Christ, I actually think if you learn about what Stephen was saying and what the accusations that were made against him, he was saying, I think, that the Old Covenant is finished. That Jesus is going to shut this whole place down. He's shutting down the temple. He's shutting down the animal sacrificial system. Was he? Had Jesus shut down the animal sacrificial system? Yes. Did they know it yet? No. So Stephen was way ahead of his time. Some of the themes that have come out in the book of Acts, I think Stephen was preaching, they just weren't ready to hear it but he's proving it from scripture. And who was winning the debate? Stephen was winning. They couldn't withstand him. They couldn't stand up his re against his reasoning, his arguments. Is it possible that Paul was among the, the Jews who were there from Cyrene and Cilicia and all that? That's where Tarsus is from. That he was there, that he heard Stephen and yearned to refute him, but couldn't do it and was bothered by what he said. And it stuck with him. Could it be Stephen put some of those goads inside Saul's mind? I think so. They're, they're scriptural inducements. They're reasons why. And when Jesus, you know, he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. That kind of finished it there. All right. There's clear evidence of Jesus' resurrection. But it's goads. So what we want to do is we want to put goads in people's minds. We don't have to convert them today. But we put thoughts in their minds that cause them to want to know more about Christianity, want to ask us more to give a reason for the hope they have. There, it's a process. So I think John 6, 44 implies a process whereby the Father is drawing unconverted elect people to him. It doesn't happen all at once. Um, we know there's urgency. They might die later that day or tomorrow and, and go to hell, and I understand that. But we, we can't do anything about that. You're surrounded by people like that all the time anyway. There are people in process all the time. You're looking for your good work to do, something God's set up for you, you're looking for an opening in a conversation you can have. And even in that conversation, you don't necessarily need to do God, man, Christ response totally. You find out if you got an hour, do it. But if you don't, 
say, you know, talk to me about Christianity. Well, I never believe in that. Why? Well, the Bible, it's just full of errors and all that. And it's like, well, can I just say something about that? You just put one thought in there that addresses. And that's what we're about here. Does that make sense? So that's what we're trying to do. We're putting in in inducements. We're putting goads in people's mind to come to Christ. Um, And there's also that reasonable aspect where it says in Isaiah 1, 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. There's such a reasonableness to this. What good would it be for you if you would gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Isn't that a very reasonable argument? How will it do you any good to have been the richest person in history and spend eternity burning in hell? That's illogical. You see the logic behind the question. What good would it be? There's always, let's reason together. The most important thing you need is forgiveness of sins. Let's reason about that. Let's talk about it. So we see that. Again, Acts 26, he says, uh, I love this, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. What a great moment. (laughs) I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. That's, That's really, that's what apologetics is about. What we are saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. (laughs) Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? So that's the process of apologetics. You know, and he says, I really wish I, I would love to persuade you to be a Christian just without these chains. You would, like, release me out of the chains. All right. Three aspects of apologetics, according to John Frame. Apologetics as proof, that is, providing a rational basis for faith or proving Christianity to be true. That would be historical evidence, confronts the doubts that rise in people's minds that it's even true. So this would be evidentiary, you know, the evidence of the resurrection, things like that. Um, Proof. Apologetics as defense. So that's answering objections that people have, uh, you know, that, that, that... you know, make Christianity seem unreasonable. Like, um, you know, how can the dead be raised? Uh, What kind of body will they come? Remember how Paul answers that from a few weeks ago. How foolish. That was his answer. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? A little bit rude there, Paul. A little rude. You know, legitimate question. He doesn't think it's legitimate. Because remember, he's talking to Christians, people in the Corinthian church, and he understands those questions are not, they're almost like rhetorical questions. How are the dead raised? All right, fine. Well, what kind of body do they have? So there's a foolish unbelief behind the attitude that he's getting at. But then he goes on and answers the question uh, and gives them reasons, etc. A lot of what Paul writes, uh, he writes from a logical point of view. Paul always seems to be aware of debate partners. I mean, you see this a lot in Romans in his epistles. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some claim that we're saying, let us do evil that good may result? So Paul's saying, I know what you're going to say if I start preaching grace to you. If I start, start preaching full forgiveness of sins apart from the works of the law, you're going to say, let's just, then we can sin as much as we want. I know that's what you're going to say. How did he know that? Because he heard people say it. And when he writes down Romans, he's got arguments against what they say. 
Or again, in Romans 9, one of the hardest doctrinal passages in the Bible on, on predestination, election. He knows that people are going to argue against, against his doctrine. And he says, one of you will say to me, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? So there's that aspect of it. So apologetics, uh, third aspect of apologetics, apologetics going on, on, offense, on, on offense. Sorry, We are trying to show how foolish are the views of, of unbelievers. I, I found a really good example of this in Isaiah 44. All right, Isaiah 44 is where Isaiah ridicules idolatry. You remember that passage? Where some guy goes out and finds a tree and cuts it down, and he's got a really nice log of hardwood, and he uses half of it to make an idol and half of it to cook his dinner. Right? He, he's, this is just pure ridicule. Half of it he puts in the fire and says, ah, I see the flame, I'm warmed. And the other half he bows down and says, save me, you are my God. What's going on there? The attitude is dripping with sarcasm. It's like, do you not see how foolish this is? And so, you know, that's, that, so those are the three aspects of, um, of apologetics. All right. Now, today's topic, uh, with the time we have left, is defending the Bible. We're going to defend, that's our first real topic today after this, these introductory comments on apologetics as a whole. So we're going to make a defense for the Bible. Now we have to begin again by defending the process itself. Does the Bible need defense? Spurgeon said this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Uh, that's a great quote, but I believe in a better business bureau of pastor quotes like sermon quotes. I want to track him down and be sure that the person ever said it. Apparently, he never said that. It's a total bummer. So then who did say it? Well, what he did say is this. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Now, that he did say. I, I can see where you get the first quote. That's, that's a lot of words. All right? If we could just boil it down to something a little more efficient, I feel like some redactor or editor got hold of this whole paragraph and shortened it. But Spurgeon is so good. And, you know, and his comments made me think about this great passage in Isaiah. Someone read this for us, Isaiah 31.4. I love that. Isn't that good? Lion's not intimidated, lion's not afraid. Can you imagine God, almighty God, intimidated or afraid? No. So we shouldn't think the word of God is, is trembling in its boots as a Voltaire comes along or a Thomas Paine or a Thomas Jefferson. It's like, no, I'll still be here after they're all dead. And it's just so, so powerful. We need confidence, but there's still a, an a, apologetics angle on defending the Bible against, because that's where a lot of people start. They think the Bible is outdated. Uh, in our day and age of, of awareness of social injustices, they think the Bible advocates slavery or other things like that, and is therefore, or you know, gender-based roles are clearly we're beyond that. So blah blah blah, and so they just set the whole Bible aside. And they usually do it very ignorantly because they haven't read it. Like the Bible's uh, Bible's addressing of slavery is deep, intricate, and multi-layered, and usually they don't they don't even begin to understand how ardent Christians can be can be, um, you know, uh, openly against uh, slavery and, and we're essential, like William Wilberforce, 
uh, abolitionists to destroy it. Why is slavery illegal all over the world today? Historically, they don't know. And they don't know how ardent Christians have been part of that. All they see is that Christians defended slavery from certain passages of the Bible. I talked to my daughter about slavery the entire way in here because I knew we were, you know, we were going to address it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just simplistic. So I think there is a role for apologetics when it comes to the Bible. The Bible does, to some degree, need to be defended. But I think Spurgeon's point is true. It's just unleash the Bible. Quote the Bible to people. Quote Bible verses. Get Bible verses in their head. Say to them, what would it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Just say those words, people. And then I've actually said to people, I'm going to pray that the things I've said to you will so burn in your mind you won't be able to sleep tonight. I've, and then we reach that level where we, you know, he laughed. He said, well, I think I'm still going to sleep pretty well. You know, that kind of thing. So I'm going to pray. I'll find out in heaven whether it happened or not, but I did pray it. Because that's happened, hasn't it, in redemptive history. <clears throat> people hear scripture verses, and they just can't shake them. And they think about them. They, they are like goads. The Bible in Isaiah says the words of God are like goads that stick in people's minds. So I think Spurgeon's point is unleash the Bible, just say it. But there's still some apologetics that we need. The Bible is an anvil that has destroyed many hammers. I love that. It's just they wail away, but it's still there, and, you know, and they're gone. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. The Bible is, is eternal. It never changes. Scripture cannot be broken. But that doesn't mean apologetic defense of the Bible is not helpful. Now, ultimately, we want to say the Bible is self-authenticating. It's its own authority. There's no tribunal that stands above the Bible and gives its stamp of approval. Yes, actually, the Bible is the Word of God. Oh, I'm relieved now. A government agency told me so. It's like, look, look, there's no government agency we're looking to. There's no independent blue ribbon panel that's going to give us the, the imprimatur, the, you know, and say, yes, we've decided the Bible is the Word of God. Because then that would be higher in authority than the Bible. The Bible is self-authenticating. It, it tells us of its own authority. That's what it does. Um, now, the next section uh, comes from Josh McDowell's uh, Apologetics and some others, the uniqueness of the Bible. The Bible is a unique book. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't behave like any other holy book. So people can, can cite the scriptures of, of the Hindu religion and say that they're older, but they probably haven't read them. They can cite the Quran. They can talk about other holy writings. But the Bible is just different than all of these. It stands alone. It stands apart. Um, and all of these facts I could read through, but you could read them too. I want to get on to my uh, basic proof, which is Christ's view of Scripture. Um, you know, the, the uniqueness of the Bible, uh, written over 1,500-year uh, span, over 40 generations, and written about hundreds of controversial topics, and yet speaks with one harmonized voice. And uh, I'll tell you, for me, one of the great joys, one of the great joys of being a theologian pastor, a pastor theologian, et cetera, I, I love it when the Bible seems to contradict itself, because I know it doesn't. So then I love harmonizing. And when I take text A and text B that seem to not harmonize and meditate on, on them, always knowing they are harmonizable, that they can put because they came from one mind, I learn new things. I learn new things, and it's a very, very powerful process for me. And I think inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is inerrant and speaks with one voice and can be harmonized is one of the most exciting parts of meditating deeply on Scripture. The Bible is unique also in its circulation and translation. I went on the Wycliffe Bible Translator site last night. 705 languages complete Bible. 
66 books. That's a big job, by the way. I mean, think about, you know, translating Ezra into a tribal language and how long that would take. And we've got friends that are working with Wycliffe and are doing work at, in Cameroon on some of the tribal languages there, and they've got portions and they're working toward it. Almost as many as 2,500 portions. I would say 90% of the world's population or more has the Bible in their heart language. So that's pretty impressive. So you think about the work that's done, been done over the last two centuries to make that so. But that's what's happened. That's been the movement of the Holy Spirit to get the Bible available in people's heart languages. Very, very good. And the Bible is still here. All right, now, what I want to do is I want to talk uh, for the rest of the time we have on Christ's view of Scripture. Now, what you have here, this long handout, and it is long, it's an article that I wrote a number of years ago in which I was you know, continually having to do some, um, what do you say, clinical work, pastoral clinical work of people who went to Duke or UNC and took Bible classes there and they have their faith deconstructed by some skillful, arrogant person, you know, like Bart Ehrman or whatever, and, they, and they're like, they're losing their faith in the Bible, and they don't want to lose their faith in the Bible. Help me, Pastor, I'm struggling, you know. Genealogy A and genealogy B didn't line up. I'm like, that's it? That's what you got? <laughs> Genealogies. Okay, so let's, let's spend time. So what I tended to do with these folks is I, I went after this basic concept. I'm talking to Christians. Now, in this, the rest of the time, I want to start with this and say I understand that this will not be satisfying to an unbeliever. But I'm mostly just addressing any doubts you have about the Scripture. You know, a lot of times you're just out there stamping out fires. So you got seven-day creation, you got logistics with the ark, and you got all this kind of thing. And, you know, what I want to say is, look, I actually think that it's a reasonable prophet. You know, I, I would have no problem spending time on logistical problems with the ark. Do I actually believe there was literally a gopher wood ark, blah, blah, blah? Yes, I do. So it's like, well, how do you conceive of that? It's like, well, you know, I haven't, I haven't in my mind plumbed the, the, the depths of the details but I haven't found anything that just is an eject mode with it. So, um, you know, there were specific questions. Go ahead. Yeah, I've been there. I, I've been there. It's, it's a fun place. Uh, you know, he ridiculed, crea what is it, uh, like uh, creation, you call it pseudoscience? Yeah. So, anyway, um, and again, you know, it, it may be with some of these people, there are moral issues beyond all of this. They, they, they really are just moral issues, and they're just trying to find fault with their accuser which is their conscience. And their conscience alternately accuses and defends, accuses and defends them, Paul says. Well, Dr. Gellman, in there, I talked about this on the call yesterday, Dr. Gellman makes a point that in going off campus, and she said, I've hardly found anyone who thinks in their mind we have moral issues that are bad. Yeah. All right, but that doesn't mean there aren't questions to be answered. Now, I'm not going to spend time working on logistics with the ARC. I think we could answer some of that. What I want to do is I want to talk about this one question. How did Jesus, our Savior, view Scripture? And we Christians should have the same view of Scripture that Jesus did. So what I want you to do, and what this would do then, is clear away, hopefully, for all of you, any even shadow of a doubt about the written Word of God, so that you have an unshakable confidence that comes across in your communication with your friends. I'm not going to have the time right now to stamp out all the fires that they'll bring up. There are valid questions on seven-day creationism and all that. We can, we can get into it. But 
I want you to go from a point where you don't have any doubts because it happens. People defect from the faith. They, they, doubts start to creep in and Satan can start to pick at it. He's been doing it from the beginning. Did God really say? So from the start, he's working at the scripture, conference of scriptures. I find this is a very helpful remedy. What is Christ's view of scripture? And if I can just cut to the chase, it is impossible for me to conceive of having a higher view of scripture than Jesus did. It's so far beyond inerrancy. It's, it's just, it, I would say, infinitely beyond inerrancy. That's Christ's view of scripture. All right, so I've got various points, but let me start with what I think is the strongest. Christ would rather die than violate scripture. You stop and think about that. Are any of you at that level? You're not. You violate scripture every time you sin. Jesus never sinned. And you remember very plainly, now that what you have in front of you, this is an actual article I wrote with like decent prose and transitional statements and it's not a BFL handout. That's why it's so long. And I just didn't wanna take the time to edit it this week. So I figured I'll just give you the whole thing. But what I'll do now is I'll just summarize many of its points with the time we have left, which is about 20 minutes. And you can read the whole thing. It stands alone. It was meant to be given to someone. Go home and read this. Let's talk when we get together. And I'll tell you, the people, the students that went to Bart Ehrman's class that really wanted to believe in the Bible but were struggling, they were always helped. Because, you know, you end up with a certain point <laughs> where you, you find out what Jesus' view of, of Scripture is, and you, and you see what Paul's view of Scripture is. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. You see that, and then you can say, I hate to quote a demon, but go ahead, do it, like the demon said to the seven sons of Sceva. Jesus I know and I know about Paul, but who are you, Bart Ehrman? I couldn't care less what you think about Scripture. I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. I'm going to believe the Scripture the way Jesus did. Now, what do I mean that Jesus would rather die than violate Scripture? Well, in Gethsemane, um, Fundamentally, Jesus is wrestling with a question, the eternal question, should he, will he drink the cup the Father is offering to him? You remember that? And he, it's just the most, I think, single most heroic moment in the history of the human race because Jesus was a human. He's the Son of Man. And he, as our representative, obeyed his Father and drank the cup. He'd already worked that through, not my will but yours be done. Then he gets up and the, and the crowd is there to arrest him. Remember what happens? As they're going to arrest him, Peter pulls out his fishing, fishing dagger, his machaira, his little dagger, and he wants to take on the Roman soldiers. There's probably like 600 of them. He's going to fight for Jesus. What an absurd moment, all right? So <clears throat> he's, he's ready to fight and Jesus turns and deals with Peter. And what does he say? Put your sword away. And then he gives us three reasons why he should put his sword away. Number one, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. All right, so I would call that a simple pragmatic argument. Look around, Peter, you're outnumbered. You might hack your way through the first guy, but there's another 599 trained Roman soldiers. You're not going to last long. All right, so just put, and, I, and you, I'm not saying we're making a defense for pacifism here or any of that. I'm just saying just look at Peter, look at your situation. Unless I do a miracle to save you, you're going to die very soon. So put your sword away. It's very pragmatic. But then secondly, he said, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, friends, if you know anything about the power of angels versus the power of Roman soldiers, that is the greatest mismatch ever. 
One soldier could handle all of them. One soldier killed 185,000 Assyrian troops, or one angel, sorry, killed 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. Now, that might have been the angel of the Lord. might have been Jesus. Jesus doesn't need the angels. But if he's going to use the angels, he's got, I got 12 legions of angels that will come down. And this thing will be done. In other words, if I were trying to escape arrest, I wouldn't use you and your fisherman sword or knife. I would call on my father and he would deliver me by sending these angels. But now here's the real point. But if I did that, how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? What's Jesus' reason for not fighting the arrest? In the text, what's the reason? Scripture says he must die. Do you see the logic? Scripture says I must die by being pierced and bleeding out. And so I will. Now, I'm asking you, friends, can you imagine a higher view of Scripture than that? Scripture says I must be pierced. Where does the Scripture say I must be pierced? Jesus could quote all the piercing verses. There's a handful of them. <clears throat> Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 in particular. Pierced, pierced. And where does it say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness? It says it all over the animal sacrificial system. Blood, 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 blood everywhere. The, the, the blood of the uh, sacrifice is given to make atonement for sins. Jesus understood. He understood what was going on. The scripture declares that he must die that bloody death. That's his reason for not fighting it. Now, you look at this and you, and you think, Lord, would you please, by your spirit, work that level of commitment to scripture in my life? that I would not violate anything the Lord has forbidden or commanded me to do, that I would be that faithful to Scripture. Any questions on that first point? Christ's view of Scripture. He would rather die than violate Scripture. Okay, point number two. Christ taught that he fulfilled Scripture. Again and again and again, he taught that he fulfilled Scripture. Uh, <clears throat> you can go ahead and look at my, the key text in, in Luke 4. Jesus began his public ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he goes there on the Sabbath, and the scroll of Isaiah is found, and he opens it up, he unrolls it, and finds the place, Isaiah 61, where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has uh, anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So he reads that section. Then he rolls up the scroll and sits down in the posture of teaching. And then he says these words. Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Now, can you imagine how electric that would have been to hear that? This is a messianic scripture. Yes. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me. You're claiming to be the Messiah. Yes. The scripture is fulfilled. Jesus claimed to fulfill scripture. As a matter of fact, there is such an intimate connection between the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus' life that that's why John, under the Holy Spirit, chose to call him the Word. There, you literally know nothing about Jesus apart from the written Word of God. Nothing. You can know all kinds of things about a creator God from looking at, at nature. Amazing things. You can learn about God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature from looking at creation. But you can't learn the Trinity. You can't learn the Son of God by looking at it. has to be told you. The Scripture has to tell you that God the Father sent his Son into the world, that he lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, that he rose from the dead. All of that's written in Scripture, prophesied in the Old Testament, then written the account and explained in the New. 
And Jesus is saying again and again, we have the key word, fulfilled. Jesus taught, he fulfilled scripture. His birth by the Virgin Mary fulfilled scripture. His birth uh, in a, in the, uh, as a descendant of, of Abraham and of David fulfilled scripture. It, it just everywhere, from the very beginning uh, of Matthew's gospel, right on through, it's fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. He fulfilled scripture. And so that is the key. Um, uh, sorry, John 5. 40, uh, uh, 45 through 47. Can someone read that for us? I, don't, I think I'm bottom of page four. What do you think about those words, he wrote about me? I mean, if you're one of Jesus' Jewish enemies, how would you hear that? Moses wrote about me. That's incredible. I mean, that's it's blasphemy, frankly, unless it's true. But Jesus says this again and again. He wrote about me. How would the scripture be fulfilled? He said, we must go to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man must be fulfilled. He says this again and again and again. Uh, scriptures are fulfilled. John 13, 18, talking about Judas. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So again and again, we have all of these uh, statements concerning the fulfillment of scripture. If you look at Jesus on the cross, he makes seven statements from the cross. Three of them are directly connected to Old Testament scripture. One in the quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's incredible. Psalm 22. But Psalm 22 gives a meticulous description of crucifixion. That's where it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Many strong bulls have encircled me. You know, they roar at me like ravenous lions. You get the sense of a center of attention of someone who's pierced and all of these things. And it's just clearly described the sufferings of Christ. It's amazing. All of these things uh, were written very, very plainly in Scripture. Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Thirdly, Christ taught the unbreakable authority and permanence of Scripture. He said in John 10, 35, <coughs> Scripture cannot be broken. Excuse me. <coughs> scripture cannot be broken. What does that mean? Scripture cannot be broken. I love it. You know, it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, right? So you think about uh, Ephesians 6, which says the sword of the spirit, which is what? What's the sword of the spirit? The word of God. Imagine in a battlefield where you go out with a low-quality blade and you're fighting uh, an opponent who's got a high, higher quality steel than you have, and your swords meet, and yours shatters, and his is intact, what's going to happen to you? Well, you know what's going to happen to you. You're going to die. So now take that concept, the <coughs> sharp double-edged sword of the Word of God, and then bring in John 10, 35. Scripture cannot be broken. So when Satan's sword, his lies, false you know, false religions, arguments, atheistic claims, whatever, hit the word. One of them shatters and the other doesn't. Scripture cannot be broken. It's, it's impossible. It's still going to be around. Heaven and earth will pass away, he said. My words will never pass away. Matthew 5, 18 and 19, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, jot or tittle in the KJV, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So scripture is going to outlast heaven and earth. It's going to outlast the present world. So therefore, scripture is everything. Jesus said to, to the Sadducees, you're an error because you do not know the scriptures of the power of God. 
All right, fourth. Christ lives sinlessly moment by moment by all scripture. All right, how did he do that? Well, think about his temptation in the desert. Remember that? The tempter came to him three times. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. What does he do all three times to fight off the temptation? Do you remember? He quotes scripture. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. These are the clear statements. It is written, you shall not put the Lord to the test. Two of them from Deuteronomy 6 and one of them from Deuteronomy 8. So that led me into scripture memorization in Deuteronomy because I didn't think Jesus was hauling around a Deuteronomy scroll with him out in the desert. I figured he had it, you know, in his mind and his heart. So uh, he fought off temptation by scripture. And, you know, if you think even just about the statement, it wasn't just any kind of statement. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's never been anyone in history that so fully lived that out as Jesus. He fed on every word that came from Scripture. And therefore, he said in John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him because he lived constantly according to the law. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. Isn't it beautiful to think that Jesus' perfect obedience to the written word of God, to the law, is yours as a gift? That the Father sees you as obedient as Jesus. That's what righteousness, imputed righteousness, is all about. He actively obeyed the word of God and then gives that active obedience to you like a beautiful garment to put on. And in that garment, you'll stand on judgment day. Perfect obedience to the law. It's beautiful. That was Jesus. Fifth, Christ staked his life on even obscure details of Scripture. Tiny details. All right, he looks at tiny, tiny details. Smallest letter, least stroke of a pen. I want to go up to John 10, 31 through 36. Someone read that for us. John 10, 31 to 36. All right, this is really quite remarkable. So they are ready to kill him. They have picked up stones. He's, he's facing an enraged, basically a rage mob. They're ready to kill him for blasphemy. And what does he reach for to protect himself? A statement, I said you are gods. It's written in your law, I said you are gods. What in, where is that? That's in Psalm 82, verse 6. Any of you would say that Psalm 82 is your favorite psalm? Like, no, Psalm 23, love Psalm 23. Psalm 119 is awesome. Psalm 19, Psalm 1, all kinds of great famous psalms. Not Psalm 82. Very few of you even know what it says. What's even harder is to try to follow Jesus' logic here. I, I don't fully understand it. I don't think it gives an open door to the Jehovah's Witnesses to say we're all gods in some regard or the Mormons or something like that. It's not that. I'm not pretending here in front of you to follow Jesus' logic. I'm just looking at his methodology. To save his life, he reaches for Psalm 82, verse 6. The detailed knowledge of Scripture, the honor that Jesus gave all Scripture is amazing. He even calls it law. The Psalms are, you know, in the wisdom literature as a major heading or division, but to him it was the law of God, all of it. The Psalms even were the law of God. I said you are gods. The detailed knowledge, the meticulous knowledge, the jot and tittle, so to speak. Every small stroke of a pen mattered to Jesus. And then Christ proved his deity by a single word of scripture. All right, his deity by a single word of scripture. Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David, 
they replied. He said to them, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, then how can he be his son? I love this. It said, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All right. This is amazing. He zeroes in on the issue of son of David. You call him the son of David. Was he the son of David? Yeah, he was. Actually, Matthew 1.1. Record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's actually the first thing that's said about Jesus in the New Testament. He is the son of David. But he's pushing at their understanding of what that meant. And he brings up Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. That comes down to literally one word in the Hebrew. Because the possessive, my, is wrapped up in the ending of the Hebrew word. And so, the Lord said to my Lord. And notice Jesus' assumption. David, David wrote Psalm 110. That's key to the argument. That David was writing by the Holy Spirit. That's key to the argument. Inerrancy. David didn't make a mistake. But in that spirit-filled writing, he calls his own son, the Messiah, my Lord. Now, we Christians, we don't have a problem with that. We actually can picture David up in heaven now bowing before the throne of King Jesus. We don't have any problem with that because we understand the incarnation. But they didn't understand the incarnation. They didn't believe it yet. He was working on that, and he was proving it from Psalm 110. And it came down to a single word. He proves his deity by a single word. It's incredible. And even, you know, a single letter at the end, my Lord. It's in, an incredible uh, statement. All right, moving on. Christ proved his resurrection by a single verb tense in Scripture. All right, somebody read Matthew 22, 31, 32. It's awesome. Resurrection of the dead. First of all, notice who Jesus says. This is in the, uh, the account of the burning bush. Remember in Exodus 3 when he calls Moses to set the people free. Remember all that? So the, the flames of the burning bush burning and out of the burning bush, the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take off your sandals, all that. Notice who Jesus said the whole account is written for. Have you not read what God said to you? Isn't that amazing? God is speaking to you, dear reader of Exodus, from this text. That's Jesus' attitude about the word of God. When you read scripture, that's God speaking to you by the Holy Spirit. And what is he saying? I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. How does that prove resurrection? It's the verb tense. Let me rephrase it slightly, and you'll see it. I am Abraham's God. Oh, Abraham still exists? Yes. Right now, I am Isaac's God. Isaac has a God right now, and it's me. Oh, then Isaac still exists. Yes. And I am Jacob's God too. He is not the God of the dead. They are still alive. Resurrection. And that's, that's his proof of the resurrection, but it just comes down to the verb tense. I am. He is the I am. Uh, eighth, Christ instilled passion about Scripture in the hearts of his disciples. That's the road to Emmaus. You can read it. It's awesome. But at the end of his time, when he's teaching them Scripture, their hearts were burning in them when he opened the scripture to them. That's, that was it. He was ministering scripture. He wanted to leave them with sound exegesis and theology. As he ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit would come and help them to complete the New Testament 
uh, to write the New Testament and complete their understanding of the Old Testament. That's what the Spirit came to do, to explain them to them all things and to bring them in all truth. And when they were done, their hearts are burning uh, in their hearts. That's my goal as a preacher and a teacher of the Word of God, by the Spirit of Christ, that your hearts are burning within you when you read the Scripture. All right, next. Christ uh, taught what Scripture says God says. This is a very interesting argument. It's on divorce. And uh, let me just explain to you how it works. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? The creator, the creator made them male and female, and the creator made a statement about them. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The creator said that about them. But if you go to Genesis 2 and read where that statement's, it's just in the narrative. It's not in the red-letter edition of the Old Testament. And there actually is a red-letter edition of the Old Testament. I had one years ago, but it floated away from me. I gave it away. I want it back. Anyway, what would the red-letter edition of the Old Testament be? What would you put in red letters in the Old Testament? Well, what do you put in red letters in the New Testament? Jesus quotes what's in black, things he didn't say, all right? So what would, by that logic, be the red-letter Old Testament? Wherever it says, thus says the Lord, like, let there be light would be in red but in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth would be in black. Jesus is like, put it all in red or put it all in black because it's all God's word. It's all God's word. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The creator said that through Moses. What scripture says, God says, that's Jesus' attitude towards scripture. And then Christ was condemned because of one quotation of scripture. He said, are you the Christ? Actually, two quotations. He said first, I am. And then he says, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel, Son of Man vision. And they tore their robes and condemned him to death. Did he not know what, how they would react? He knew. But he's quoting scripture. He's saying, look to the Son of Man passage. Who is the Son of Man? How does he get worshipped by every tribe, language, people, and nation? Who is he? He's not the Ancient of Days in that vision. He comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and receives from him glory, honor, and power. Who is he? They killed him anyway. But again, Jesus' proof of the deity of the Christ. So here's the summary that I gave you. Christ would rather die than disobey Scripture. Christ taught that he fulfilled Scripture. Christ taught the unbreakable authority and permanence of Scripture. Christ lived sinlessly moment by moment by all Scripture. Christ staked his life on even obscure details in Scripture. Christ proved his deity by a single word of Scripture. Christ proved the resurrection by a single verb tense in Scripture. Christ instilled passion about uh, Scriptures in the heart of his disciples. Excuse me. Christ taught what Scripture says God says, and Christ was condemned because of one quotation of Scripture. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Compared to Bart Ehrman, what is all this? We have no fear of what questions people can bring against uh, Scripture. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.